morning and welcome to the orchard. We are glad you are with us today. And one of our values here at the orchard is it is fun to be us. That is literally one of our values. And my children, it's fall festival today here after church. We have a huge party planned. And my kids said, Dad, what are you dressing up as today? And I said, I'm dressing up as a real preacher. <laughs> That's right. So welcome. We are glad you're here. This is the, uh, the first Sunday I've ever preached a sermon in a suit. That's right. That's right. I'm glad. Wow. Don't get used to it. There's no amount of encouragement. We'll have this usually happen again, okay? <laughs> we are so glad you're here with us, whether you are joining us online, um, wherever you are, or whether you're here in the building, welcome. We've been going through the book of John um, this past year, and it has been just so great as we have, put, we have said, we want to elevate Jesus above all things. Above all pandemic, above all politics, above all personal things, Jesus above all, that's where the orchard stands firmly. And right now we are in John 15. We have been looking at Jesus in John 13 and 14 in the upper room with the, the final Passover, the last supper. And the last sentence of John 14 is he leaves the upper room. He says, come, let us leave this place. And so in John 15 and 16, we see Jesus imparting truths to his disciples while they're on the move. It's two chapters, but it's really just one conversation that he's having with his, his now 11 disciples. And now we don't know for certain, but I would guess that Jesus and the disciples are walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane, where in John 17, he's going to pray. So in my mind, what we're reading today and hearing is the teachings of Jesus as he's walking you can imagine them walking through the dark of night. This is a, a late night stroll. There might be moonlight lighting it. They're walking to the garden and perhaps they're, they're walking through the garden through part of this teaching. And Jesus, knowing that this is absolutely his final conversation with his disciples before he's arrested, he wants to impart some vital truths to his, to his guys. And it's here, I believe, perhaps entering the Garden of Gethsemane during this this talk, he chooses to speak to his disciples, and he chooses for you to hear today about gardening. That's what we're going to look at today. He often used locations as he taught throughout the Gospels. He would use a location as sort of a visual prop of what he's talking about. And, and here, in this final conversation, he decides to bring up gardening. And so as you hear these words, place yourself, following single file behind him, in the dark of night with some moonlight lighting, you're walking through a garden, your hands are brushing some branches, some leaves, and your eyes are seeing the olive garden of Gethsemane around you. And then you hear the voice of your rabbi. You hear him begin to speak, and he says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Now, he begins this metaphor by stating the positions. I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. And we read this, and we don't really take issue with that at all. You may have read this before, and you're like, okay, I, I, I mean, that's fine. Nothing in there is too bothering. But if you were a Hebrew disciple following Jesus that night, there's something in this statement that would have caused you some concern. Hearing Jesus say, I'm the true vine, and, and God is the gar my father is the gardener, there might have been some alarm bells going off. Je but, but then again, Jesus has just stated something in that sentence that a Hebrew in that context with knowledge of the Tanakh, their Bible, they would, have, they would have been a bit taken back by this. 
but already this night, as we've in- investigated this, Jesus has already taken him through a Passover meal, and he's declared himself, his body, uh, the, the middle bread. He's declared his blood, the, the third cup of the covenant. And here he's doing something again. He's saying something that would be a little bit shocking. Now, first of all, let's say what's not shocking. The Old Testament is full of um, writings about the vine and the gardener. It is in and throughout the Old Testament in many different places. It's a common theme. But when Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener, one of those statements would have been known and accepted. The disciples would have heard and what Jesus just said, and, and knowing the, the, their Bible, they would have thought about Isaiah 27, where God says, I, the Lord, am the keeper of the vineyard, the gardener. Every moment I water it, I keep it day and night. They would have said, yes, God is the gardener. He tends the garden day and night. So we immediately see that Jesus isn't stating anything about his father, the gardener, that those who knew the Old Testament would have any issue with at all. The Old Testament states clearly, repeatedly, that God is the gardener, the caretaker, the tender of the vineyard. That's the first part, but it's the first part of the statement. The first thing Jesus says about declaring himself the true vine. This is one of those moments where Jesus is taking a common theme, a common knowledge moment from the Old Testament and inserting himself into it, saying something brand new. Just like the Passover meal. So, so let's investigate, what is so out of place that Jesus says, I am the true vine? Because for us, we have to admit, we have no context that would make us go, ooh, whoa, slow down, Jesus. But something about this causes some people to think some things. But first of all, I, I want to mention something that if you've been tracking with us, you'll, you'll take notice. John has seven I am statements in his gospel. Remember, he has seven miracles seven signs, and he has seven I am statements. And these I am statements are specific and special terms that Jesus uses, and they have deep roots in the Old Testament, but they're revealing new truths about him. Now, first and foremost, the part that says I am. Now, that right there is powerful in itself, and we're going to do a deep dive on that at a coming Sunday. But for now, I want you to listen to these seven I am statements. And as you hear them, notice that Jesus is saying something different about himself and his mission with every one of them. It's kind of like a diamond. Every time you turn the diamond to a new facet, you may see something new. So let's look at the seven I am statements of Jesus and John and landing on the last one. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way and the truth and the life. And finally today he says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Now when I was studying this, there's one word in that last sentence, I am the true vine. There's one word in that sentence that was the portal, the entryway to the rabbit hole I went down into. That it was, it came to some amazing discoveries. It's not the I am part. And usually we real preachers, we like to focus on the vine part. And we'll get there. But the word that stands out to me in this sentence is that I am the true vine. I am the true vine. He could have said, I'm the vine. 
But instead, he places this qualifier in the sentence. I am the true vine. If Jesus wants it to be known that he, would, he is the true vine, that would inform us of something. There's another vine. If he's the true vine, there must be some other vine. He's contrasting these two vines, and he's declaring himself the truer of the two. The word here, true, in the Greek means the opposite of what is imperfect. The opposite of what is imperfect. John uses this word nine times in his gospel alone. Compared to Matthew and Mark, they don't use that word at all. Luke uses it one time. John goes on to use it two more times in his letter in 1 John. John uses the word 10 more times in the book of Revelation. Out of the 26 uses of this word, true, in the New Testament, 21 are from John. John likes this word and he's drawn to it. John seems to like separating that which is true from that which is imperfect. Um, Of the 21 times that John uses this word, 10 of those times he's quoting Jesus. Jesus used this word, and it seems that, led by the Spirit, John had an ear for it where some of the others did not. Jesus says, I am the true vine. If Jesus is the true vine, opposite of that which is imperfect, what is this other vine he's contrasting himself with? What is he saying here that would be considered heresy? If any rabbis or priests or Pharisees had been in earshot, this would have been heresy for him to say this. Now, The Old Testament, again, is full of imagery of the vine and the gardener and the vineyard. And often refers to to God as, as the gardener and then refers to the nation of Israel, his people, as the vine. Over and over it is written. Here's just a few examples I want to draw out. Hosea 10 verse 1. How prosperous Israel is. A luxuriant vine loaded with fruit. Israel, the Hebrews, were at this point of writing, they were bearing much fruit. But then there's a pattern to all these prophetic writings about the vine and the vineyard and the gardener. And unfortunately, we see even here in Hosea, it goes on to say that this vine becomes corrupted through idolatry. That this vine that God planted chose idolatry, chose to worship other idols, chose to place their affections for other things above God, and, and, it, and it cost them. Jeremiah 2, 20, 21 declares this. God says, I was the one who planted you, choosing a vine of the purest stock, the very best. How did you grow into this corrupt wild vine? Like I planted you in purity, How did you become this corrupt, wild vine? He goes on to answer the question, revealing once again that they had chosen idolatry to pursue other gods and to place their affections on things above God. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 tells a story of God planting Israel as a vineyard and tending it tenderly. But the vineyard, it produces rotten and rancid grapes, good for nothing. The vineyard did not respond to the work of the gardener. And it ends with this judgment. For the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected a crop of justice, but instead found the fruits of oppression. He expected to find crops of righteousness, but instead heard crimes of violence. I, I planted this vine, this vineyard, to produce this fruit, but that's not what is coming out of this vine. Psalms 80, you brought us out of Egypt like a grapevine, out of slavery, 
You drove away the pagan nations and transplanted us. You planted us in your land. You cleared the ground for us. We took root and we filled it. But again, they turned. They turned and they, they, they turned to other idols. And God removed his hand and they were plundered and the vineyard was ruined. The examples are numerous all throughout the Old Testament. And prophet after prophet often follows the same pattern. God planting a vine and tending it. The vine growing much fruit. But then the vine turned. Turned to other idols. Turned to worship other gods. Put other affections above the gardener. And the vine was corrupted. And the fruit was bitter. And God removed his hand of protection. And it was raised and ruined. So there was a vine. It was in the Old Testament. It was this old covenant. It was the Old Testament old covenant. But Jesus comes, and what does he begin declaring, even from the wedding feast early on in his ministry? What does he declare throughout his ministry? He says, listen, he declares, my blood is the blood of a new covenant. He says, I am the bread of life to replace the bread in the temple. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He says, I am the fulfillment of all the prophets' writings. And then he has said here, I'm the true vine. He's not just making a metaphor. He's saying something that echoes way into the Old Testament about God being the gardener and there being a vine that was corrupted. And he says, I am the true vine. The other was imperfect. The covenant was broken. But I have come and I I have not worshipped idols and I have loved the Father above all things and I am the true vine. Jesus continues to tell us this metaphor. He tells us how the garden and the gardener operate. Listen to this. He said, God cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. Now we are fleshing out this picture. Jesus is the vine and and there are branches that are connected to him. And we learn that these branches connected to the true vine, those are the people who believe in Jesus. He goes on to say plainly, God is the gardener, I am the vine, and and those of you who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are branches, his followers. And then we hear about the gardener doing gardener things. We learn that he's cutting off branches that don't bear fruit and pruning others so they bear fruit. What we are learning here is that bearing fruit is important. That bearing fruit in our lives matters. Now, the first question is, well, what is fruit? Well, what would that even look like? What would that be? And the truth is, if you are rooted in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, fruit is the evidence of that relationship with him. If you're rooted in Jesus, then you will have fruits coming from that. There will be good and godly things produced out of your relationship with God. And it should be evident to people around you. There should be good deeds. There should be generous giving and kindness. And, and there should be speaking and testifying to others and, and leading people and pointing people to Jesus. And there should be the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll look at later. All of these things should be growing out of a believer's relationship with God. There should be fruit from the relationship we claim of following Jesus. The verse is interesting because it says that a branch that is connected to the vine, connected to Jesus, but not bearing fruit, it says God cuts it off. A branch connected to Jesus, 
is a branch that had to come to him in faith for salvation. And it gets cut off. This has led um, some to believe you can lose your salvation simply based on your actions or lack thereof. And I want to tell you honestly today, point blank, I do not believe that. And I'll tell you why. Overwhelmingly in the Bible, we find that that is not good works. We can't good works ourselves into salvation. And I can't have a lack of good works that leads me out of it. There are some denominations who believe you can lose your salvation at any moment and then get it back. And I had, some, I had a really close friend who grew up like this. And he said, man, he would get saved every Sunday. And he said by the time he got home, he was certain he lost it again. And I, he's like, I was always afraid, like, when, when, when do I die? Is it, I, I got to make sure I die. I, I need to receive Jesus right before it happens, whatever it would be. And there, was this, there was this fear of, of losing it and gaining it. He grew up that way. But, but the Bible is clear that salvation is a gift from God, not based on your works, so that no one can boast. You didn't good works your way into this. Jesus did the work on the cross. Cross, it's a gift from him to you. Remember the sermon I did a couple weeks ago with the Tupperware? You're in Christ. His spirit is in you, sealed by the Holy Spirit. God holds you in his hand. The verses are numerous about this. If you're a believer and you're connected to the vine, you are in Jesus, and Jesus' spirit is in you. And so let's look at what is he saying here? Because it says clearly he cuts off those that bear no fruit, that are connected. Well, I'm glad you asked, and I'm glad you're wondering, because the Greek word here for cuts off is used in many different, a couple different ways that are fairly different. John uses this word quite often, and he records Jesus using this very Greek word quite often that, mean, that he uses, it has to cut off here in our translation. And one of the uses for this word that we see over and over isn't cut off. The common use of it is to take up, to raise up, to pick up. Jesus used this word in John 5. He heals the man born lame, and he says, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Or in Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross, and follow me. Or in Mark, when he asks, how many pieces of fish and loaves did you have left? How many did you pick up? Or in Luke, they quote, it says, the angels will lift you up on their hands. There's many more uses, more than just in, in, of, of those. But here in John 15, 2, it says, he cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. I personally believe God doesn't cut off believers because they're lacking fruit. I believe the verse actually means he lifts up every branch in me that bears no fruit. And I'll tell you why. What does that look like? I studied vineyards a lot. And in a vineyard, there would be a twine or a piece of wood that would run down the lines of the vines. They're called trellises. I didn't know what a trellis was until diving into all this research of all these things. But a trellis goes down the line and the vines would be it would support the vines. It would help the branches produce more fruit. And it supported the branches when they were laden with fruit and heavy with fruit so they didn't fall to the ground where they would rot. But it happens in a vineyard. A branch falls off the trellis or is blown off or is growing off of it. And if the branch is early in season, it could continue to grow in that direction. If it begins to bear fruit, if it has fruit and falls to the ground, it's, it's liable to get, to get rotten or, or to, to, for animals to get at it. Uh, but it won't bear fruit like the branches up in the light, up supported by the trellis. But a good gardener, if the gardener's a good gardener, a master gardener, seeing this, would walk up 
and see the branch that has fallen and in his gentleness, in his tenderness, pick it up and put it back on the trellis in the light, in the sun, so it is supported so it can grow and bear fruit. Many of you here today, you understand this feeling. You understand the feeling of feeling like you have been fallen to the ground or through circumstances, things that the ground has fallen out from beneath you. You are not living in the light as others seem to be. You may feel discarded, that God is far from you. Life has you down. You are wounded relationally. You're in trouble financially. Whatever your situation would be, you feel fallen. And know this. Know that the Father, the Master Gardener, at some point will come and lift you up and bring you back into the light of the support of the trellis where you can bear fruit. He will not leave you trodden. He will gently raise you up and give you this support and position your life once again to live in the light. And, and, and maybe for some of you here today listening or, or, or watching, that's all you needed. You feel fallen. And it's been a long season. It's been a long time you've felt discarded. He has not come through. And I don't know when he will. And I don't know how he will. But today your prayer is, Father, good gardener, lift me up. Lift me up back into the light, to the support. There's another important gardening practice that's mentioned here in this verse. It says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. This leads us to another important thing that God, the great master gardener, does in our lives. He, he, he prunes. He prunes. Pruning is defined as this. It's the removal of a part of a vine that is not necessary for growth or that is harmful to the health or development of the vine. Pruning is a common practice in a vineyard as it improves the bearing of the fruit. Pruning is that removing of the unnecessary or harmful places so that fruit can grow greater. Pruning removes something that is just irrelevantly not necessary and that is hurting you or your life or your character. Removing it for the purpose so that your life can produce more fruit. Pruning, I have to admit, is hard. It's difficult. Pruning can be very painful. And it leaves us with an absence where something we valued once was. Sometimes I, as God prunes, we feel that, that thing missing. And, and in fact, I often have people ask me, they're going through a difficult season, and they ask me, they say, is God punishing me? And I just want to say one thing first. If the difficult circumstance that you're in is the result of your unwise decision, that's not punishment, that's natural consequence. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. There is a huge difference between punishment and pruning. Punishment is inflicting retribution, retribution based on offense. Pruning is not motivated by retribution. And it's based on love, not based on offense. Pruning is the removal of something in your life so that your life can be greater than it is now. It could be something good that God removes for something great. It could be something harmful to you 
that God removes so that you can put that energy into something good. Punishment is inflicted. Pruning is improvement. A judge punishes. But we hear he's the master gardener in our life. Now he prunes. When God prunes, he removes something from our life. It's difficult. It can be painful. And, and, and I'll tell you from experience, we notice the absence of it. When he prunes, it allows whatever energy I was using in that area to go towards somewhere else to bear fruit. A more godly cause, more godly calling or purpose. Here's one that I, I don't like to preach about, but I'm, it's, it might seem trivial to some of you. It might seem impossible to others of you, but I'm going to be transparent about some things uh, where I need pruning. In 2020, when we were told to shelter in place, you guys remember that, my phone became the church office, lobby, and meeting room. Right here. And, and it calls, texts, emails, and then trying to keep all the orchard connected on every social media platform I could find and download and find people. Just everywhere. Our church was linked through social media in our groups and our prayer meetings. Remember live prayer meetings right here on the phone. Then, then you add in the daily messages. I don't know if you know this, but if, if there's a social media platform, someone can contact you through that. And on some of them, they can just flat out call you or video chat you no matter what you're doing. My phone also became the production suite and production team of the church as I would sit here in this empty room and talk into this phone and then we would go work on it and upload it. That, that was it. Now, here's the deal. I am in no way blaming 2020 and I am in no way a victim. I made those decisions and I was on my phone way more than I would have wanted to be before that happened. That just solidified something in my life. It became obvious that this device was becoming a bigger issue in my life than I wanted. Now, it's acceptable. It's acceptable now. I mean, there's a few people out there who are like, tarnation, no, it's not, you know. But for a lot of us, we have these phones, and we're used to them, and we're scrolling. They call it doom scrolling. You guys heard that term? Like when you should be sleeping or should be doing something, but it, you, there's an extra 15 minutes of just... And like the, then you realize, oh, it's, half, it's been half an hour. Whatever it would be, they, they have names for these things. In fact, they did a survey of people and 56%, 56% self-reported that they're on their phone over 5 to 10 hours a day. And that's self-reporting. I just want to see the one where they don't get the chance to report on an opinion. It just tells us how long we're actually on it around the nation. Listen, this phone gets more attention than I want to admit. And I have felt God prompting me and prodding me to do some pruning, to do some pruning, to, to cut some things out of my life so that the energy I put into that can go into other places where I can be more fruitful. Now, don't elbow anybody during this, this part of it. Like, I can just, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Because you probably have your own stuff you need to prune, and we'll get to that, okay? Um, I'm in the pro, and, and here's, I needed accountability. So I finally just emailed um, someone and said, I said, get me this phone. And I ordered this digital phone. It kind of looks the same. It, it does two things. It texts and it calls. And that's it. I know. It, it doesn't even have snake on there, the game. It has nothing else. It, it calls and it texts. It's 
I, I've never heard of such a phone as this. It's, it's amazing. Of course, they charge you a lot for it because they, <laughs> they make you pay for it. But here's the deal. I'm in the process of getting a dumb phone. That's what they're called. Um, and I'm going to carry it around, and I want to prune the energy that I have put into this to go other places. Now, do I want to do this? Absolutely not. I don't really want to do it. But I'm being transparent with you that God has been speaking to me about this, to prune these areas where a lot of energy is going to make room for something grace, for something greater. The reality is, um, maybe for a lot of us, there's, there's a lot of energy that goes into something that is just a time, a time waster or a time taker. That, that If we prune there, there could be fruit in any number of ways. Now, there will be some immediate fruit in my life as I'm aware more of my uh, surroundings, children, wife, whatever it is, there will be some immediate stuff. But the, the phone is getting proved, and so I pruned. And I just want to ask you this. What would the impact be if you pruned your smartphone from your life? Like, not the precious. No, I know. But like, <laughs> what would the impact be? It'd be hard for some of us, wouldn't it? be hard. But I'm going to prune this for, for a season. What about this? What if you pruned gaming from your life? Or you pruned social media? What if you pruned nighttime Netflix binging? Instead of watching Squid Games, you read a book or whatever, you know? I don't know. What if we begin to prune these things that get a lot of our energy and it never really bears any fruit at all? Where do you put your energy and time that could be used to grow fruit for God's kingdom? That could be used to further the calling and the purpose and the favor and the anointing upon your life? Think on that. Just think on it. And during communion maybe, maybe you sit and you ask God, God, what is it you would like me to begin to prune from my life? What would it be? It could be something that is good that gets pruned for something great. It could be something that just is a time waster that gets pruned for something greater. It could be something that is not pretty, that is ugly, that we're involved in, that God wants us to cut our energy out there so that energy could go into build fruit for his kingdom. Pruning is necessary. In fact, I was reading this, in a vineyard, if, if a grapevine goes unattended, it will grow green and rich and, and luscious foliage but it will grow little fruit. It will look great. It will look green and vibrant. The only problem is a grapevine wasn't created to be really green. A grapevine wasn't created to look really lush and have foliage. It was, foliage was created to prepare, to produce fruit. But the gardener wants that person, he wants that lush green vine. He wants it to produce fruit. So he will go and he will even trim back some of the greatest, the ones you're most proud of, the ones that are just the most green, the ones you put up front, the ones that you've come to believe. Uh, people around you go, wow, look how, look at how mature that person is. And we might fool people in church. We might even fool ourselves. But we were never created just to be lush and green. We're created to bear fruit, not only fruit for ourselves and for his kingdom, but fruit for a world that needs it to taste and see that God is good so that they can say, I want Jesus. Like, we have a purpose, and your purpose wasn't to sit in church and look nice and leafy and green. Your purpose was to go out and produce fruit for a world that needs it. And so he will often prune some of the, the greatest places in our lives for a season. 
so that we can produce fruit. Fruit matters. He makes it clear in here. And we ask ourselves, and I want to ask you, what godly fruit is your life producing? What fruit is your life producing? What blessings from your life are offered to other people around you? What fruit of the Spirit do you provide that, that your coworkers, they, they, they know the sweetness of your character and your patience when they've let you down, or your forgiveness? And let's look at Galatians 5. I, wanna, I know you know the fruits of the Spirit, many of you, but I want to go through them and look at them in terms of are we bearing them the way God asks us to be. Galatians 5 has the fruit of the Spirit, and these are evidences of a person who's connected to the divine Jesus. We should see increasing fruits like this, in our life. The first one is love. A growing affection for God and for the humans that God loves. And that's even your enemies. A growing affection for people. In fact, the fruit of love, when the spirit grows it, it has the power to overcome even life's deepest wounds and hurts and betrayals. And there is a person in my life who betrayed me in my past at such a deep level, I thought it would be impossible to forgive them, let alone love them. Maybe you have someone in this category in your life, but you think of them and you automatically have this reaction of bitterness, anger, resentment. Maybe you're driving down the road and this person comes to mind and the next 15 minutes you're fantasizing about the argument, how you just took them down nine notches or something happened in their life and you were victorious and you snap out of it. You just put a lot of energy into that. But there was somebody in my life, every time I thought of this person and I thought of them more than I would like to admit, it would spark bitterness in me and resentment. And God asked me to do one thing. He, didn't, he asked me to do one simple thing. Simple, yeah. To, to, to every time this person came to mind, prune that negative thought that was on coming on the other side of it and put that energy into praying blessing for them. And I was like, what kind of blessing? <laughs> Bless them with leprosy? <laughs> like... Whenever they would come to mind, prune the negative thought and put that energy into praying blessing. And he said, pray financial blessing. They, they, one of the ways they betrayed me was they took money from me. Yep. Pray I bless them financially. Pray I, pray I bless them relationally. Pray I bless them emotionally, physically, in every way. And man, I, I heard that in the car one day and I was like, oh, is there anyone else up there with any other ideas? <laughs> and I remember the first time I prayed, they immediately came to mind, and I was like, oh. And then I, I go, I pray you bless them financially. I mean, I just, it was like sand in my mouth. I was just gritting it. And I kept at it. I tried to prune those negative thoughts and pray blessing. And over time, I have to admit, my, my heart has been transformed. I have been set free from the bitterness. I've been set free from the resentment. I pray that God truly blesses this person 
blesses their marriage, blesses their finances, blesses their heart, blesses their, in every single way, and I mean it. And someday, if I see this person in heaven, which I also pray that they bless that way, I just can't wait to see how God's blessed their life. I've spent a lot of energy praying blessing for this person who I used to be so bitter at. It's just one small example of pruning and how the fruit of love can grow more and more in our life. That where we have bitterness for somebody, we prune that thought and we begin to put that energy into praying for blessing. Just one small example. The process I described, that is, that is just emotional and prayerful pruning. And so the question is, who do you have in your life? Who do you have in your life that when they come to mind, it is bitterness? It's resentment. They have wounded you. They've wounded loved ones. They've stolen from you. They've stolen a future from you. They've hurt you. I'm not asking you to do all the work at once. I'm just saying one way to do it is to, when they come to mind, prune that negative thought and take that energy and pray that God blesses them. And you will find over time there will be fruit there in a new way in a place in my life where there were very bitter grapes, there's a fruit of love. Love won. And, and, and what's cool is my wife and my kids and those around me get to reap the benefits of what God, the miracle God worked in my life. So, so who do you need to do that with? Who do you need to make an agreement with God today to, to prune those negative thoughts? Let's continue the fruits of the Spirit. We have joy. Not only increased joy, inside that combats depression, but, but passing that joy on to others, that you would be a resource of joy, that you would have fruits of joy for others. Then we have peace in the midst of uncertainty. I had a conversation with a dear friend of mine this morning, and he, he has a friend who's dealing with, a, they're all dealing with an illness, and there was anxiety there, and he just said, he sent them a whole list of verses on peace, and, and they, they said, man, that is making a difference. That's sending fruit to somebody else, fruit that's in your life that you're passing on. Then there's patience. Man, this is the fruit that is the hardest for me to produce. With kids on Highway 82, with those people driving in many different ways. But, but there's a way when God begins to move in your life and you're producing fruit where you produce fruits of patience. That's one area that is such a big indicator of how I'm staying connected to God in my life. That's one of my biggest. Then there's, then there's kindness. Just being kind to people for no reason, even strangers. My dad always used to tell me growing up, he said, um, it never will hurt you to be kind. And so in any situation, being kind, growing fruits of kindness, and then goodness, doing the right thing when circumstances arise. And this is as small as returning your shopping cart at City Market when no one's watching. Because my friend Lee has to do that, and she just had surgery, and I don't, I don't want her to have her have to. We can return our shopping carts. Small things, goodness, doing the right thing, even when no one's watching, doing the right thing in the circumstance. Faithfulness, deepening conviction and devotion to God and his ways. Gentleness. Maybe you're a person of authority, or you're a person with um, power, or you know, of personality, and gentleness is being gentle with those you might have power or authority over or personality over. And finally, self-control, the ability to regulate your cravings and desires. The more that we are connected to Jesus, the more self-control we can uh, utilize in our life and we're resourced with. And we'll be able to prune some of those patterns and cravings and vices that own us. Now, I, I had so much more of this sermon ready to go. I have another hour. And, and wearing this suit, I feel like I have the freedom to take it. <laughs> 
But the reality is the, the, Jesus goes on to talk about abiding and some beautiful things that I don't have time to get into right now. We're going to move that to another place on the calendar. We're going to get to it because it's important. But I just want to end on this, that Jesus, it, Jesus is in the discussion on the march toward his arrest. And he chooses to pull aside and talk about this. And he says, I am the fulfillment. I am the true vine. The Old Testament vine was corrupted. I am not corrupted. Connect yourself to me and I will resource you with calling and purpose and power and peace and hope for the future. I am the true vine. Stay connected to me. And, and, and honestly, one thing we need to take, be aware of is the same way that the old vine was corrupted through idolatry, through having affection for other things above God, we need to look at our own lives and, and see how we're doing with that. Are there places in my life where I have affections greater than God? Patterns and vices and people and things of this world that I bow to in my life. And where do I need to be pruned? Even if it's my favorite leaf that I work so hard on or if it's something that I'm involved in that he would ask me to say no to. As we go into prayer, there's a couple different ways for you to engage. For some of you, it's you are that branch that has been fallen down. And your prayer is for God to lift you back up. For others of us here today, I want you to ask us the honest conversation, God, where do you want to prune my life? To cut out something that is unnecessary or harmful so that I can produce fruit for those around me, for your kingdom. Jesus, we thank you so much for your death and your resurrection that you provided a path, that you are the true vine that we can connect to, to resource us in all these ways. I pray for supernatural courage in this room as you're gonna tell some of us and you're gonna invite some of us into pruning some things that we're not sure we're ready for. But Father, I pray that you would, I pray you would give us deep conviction. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to move in this room and through these recordings, that you would empower us to say yes to your pruning. We want to be the people of God who are fruitful and who go out with a purpose and provide fruit for those far from you so they can taste and see your goodness. So hear our prayer and communion and hear our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.